Well, if you would, turn in your bulletin or your Bible to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. As we continue with Paul's encouragements to the church at Philippi, a colony of heaven living in a colony of Rome. Chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. Hear the word of the Lord. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we, we come and we ask that you, by your spirit, would help us. As Paul prayed in chapter 1, that the spirit of Jesus would help us. Uh, help us to see Jesus. Help us, um, after we've been together today, uh, to trust him more. to rely on him, to respond to him, to enjoy him, to be obsessed with him, to say like Paul, to live is Christ and to die would just be more of him. God, would you give us that kind of heart? Because we've been together around this word this morning, around this table this morning. We ask for the miracle because you've promised you'd do it. In Jesus' name, amen. Church can be brutal. There's your happy good news for the morning. Church can be brutal. Um, 
That's how I summarized a conversation over lunch that I had with some old college friends of mine who have all been in ministry for 30-some years as we gathered a few weeks ago at our 30th class reunion. And uh, we just talked. These are all guys who had been, who have and are, have been and are pastors, youth pastors, missionaries. And uh, as it goes, sometimes when uh, pastors get together, we told war stories, um, hard stories. about how church can be brutal. One of us, one of the guys told a story about when he went to be a youth pastor at a 10,000 member church and um, on his first day, his first Sunday to teach in the youth ministry, someone came to him and informed him that the senior pastor whom he had never met in the entire interview process or never had a conversation with, um, was talking bad about him to other staff people and leaders in the church and saying he was the wrong guy to hire. We should have never hired him. That was day one. Uh, <laughs> and then he, uh, he eventually got a meeting, I think six months later, with the senior pastor, and the senior pastor began asking him to increase the numbers in the youth ministry. And this went on and on. Every time he said, yeah, I got this many, the pastor doubled it. He said, now I want this many. I go, okay, I got this many, now I want this many. He doubled it until my friend was burned out and left. Another story was of a church where the pastor got sick and was in and out of the hospital for two years and was away from the office for a lot of the time. And um, my friend described what happened among the staff as reminiscent of the Lord of the Flies story. <laughs> if you know that story where all these boys were left to themselves on an island and they just began to consume each other, not necessarily eat each other, but destroy each other. That was the church staff and he left. Stories about one pastor being jealous of an associate pastor and that leading to a church split. It's a mess out there, folks. And that's just pastors and staff. What about church members? I heard just this week about a pastor who was forced out by the wealthy members of his church. Not because he was immoral, not for any doctrinal differences, but those who gave the most money in the church didn't like his position on masks. And so they packed, he packed his office and was gone. My wife, Christine, has said some of the most hateful things that were ever said to her outside of family were said to her when she was the volunteer director of the women's ministry at a church by women that she was serving. The most hateful things that were ever said to her. I know of best friends who, in, in a church whose children even married each other, but who now no longer 
the in-laws never speak to each other. And I could tell you story after story, and you could tell the stories too, because I know some of yours. But I could also tell you how my own selfish ambition and conceit have hurt my own relationships in churches that I've served. I am a victim of church drama, yes. I am a victim of church drama, but I am also responsible for some church drama myself. And I imagine some of you might be too. There's good news, though. Paul knows this about churches. He's not surprised by these things. He knows this about churches because he understands the human heart. He knows that our hearts are particularly prone to selfish ambition and conceit, and, and that when the pressure's on, our hearts will default to me first mode. And that when we're in me first mode, counting ourselves as more significant than others so that we look not only so that we look only to our own interests and not to the interests of others that becomes our default way of relating counting ourselves more significant than the other looking out after our own interests and not for theirs that's that's what can happen in churches especially churches who are under pressure like the church at Philippi was. I mean, think about what it looks like in your family when everybody in the house is counting themselves as more significant than everybody else. Think about what it looks like in your house when everybody in the house looks only to their own interests and not to the interests of others. And you might be saying, well, that sounds like family vacation to me. Sounds like Thanksgiving. Um, We understand what that looks like in our families when our me-first hearts bump up against each other. But imagine when all those folks gather as a family of God in a church. And Paul gets right at the root of all of that church family drama. He gets right at the root of it. When he says that we should, in humility, count others as more significant than ourselves and therefore look to the interests of others. He knows that the Philippian church could become a church if they continue to do that, that over time they will be those who are driven by selfish ambition, a a self-seeking that can't lift its gaze upward, but who tries to get everything horizontally. He knows that we can become driven by conceit literally means empty glory. It's, it's a glory that's empty because we don't deserve it, and yet we, we're driven by it. We want it. Give me that empty glory. 
We want a glory that's not ours to have. And Paul is concerned even, not that this is on the horizon of the Philippian church, but that it's already happening. And so that's why much of this letter is about unity. Paul loves this church. In fact, if you read all of the letters to the churches, this is probably his favorite church if he were to pick favorites. He says the sweetest, kindest things about the Philippian church. But he's also honest about where they're struggling with their relationships with one another. Later in chapter four, he's gonna call out two women in the church. He's gonna say, I urge Euodia and I urge Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Imagine what it would be like. You're sitting in your house church there in Philippi um, and Epaphroditus, Epaphroditus shows up and he's got this letter from Paul and he's reading it from house church to house church and you're Euodia or you're Syntyche and he gets to the part where Paul says, I urge Euodia and I urge Syntyche, agree in the Lord, come on. Aren't you glad I don't do that to you? Um, but, wow. So there, was, there, were, there were some issues in this sweet little church. That's why he's already said in chapter one, stand firm in one spirit, striving together side by side for the faith of the gospel. And so here in these verses, Paul cuts right to the heart of what causes disunity in the church and he calls them to cultivate the kind of heart that creates unity. Verses three and four, he says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others, which sounds like Jesus, love your neighbor as you already love yourself. You look after your own interests. Now, do that for your neighbor. So Paul is saying that humility is the key here because humility is in the heart that creates unity. Humility kills selfish ambition because humility counts others as more significant than self. How can you be selfishly ambitious when you are counting others as more significant than yourself. Humility kills that. Humility kills the conceited search for empty glory because humility looks to the interests of others and not to its own glory. So humility is, is what Paul's after here. Humility creates unity. But here's the problem, Paul. Humility may create unity, but I can't create humility in me. Can you, if any of you know how to do it, let me know. Raise your hand now and I'll stop the sermon so that I can be done. Can you create, create, can you gin up humility in your heart? Oh Lord, it's hard to be humble when you're perfect in every way. I can't do it. And Paul would say, that right there is where you start. I can't do it. 
That's where you start. That's where humility begins is when you admit that you don't have it and you can't create it. Without humility, we won't have unity, but humility is not something you can create. Humility is a byproduct of something else. And Paul shows us what what I mean here. Let's go back to verse 1. Paul says, So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy... Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. The the resources you need to live in humility, in unity, are not in you. They're in Christ. He says, so if there is any encouragement, comfort, participation, affection, and sympathy. And when Paul says this, so if there is any, it's, it's not he's wondering, well, is there? If, if there is, it, it really means since there is. So whenever you read this, if there is any, he's saying since there is encouragement in Christ, since there is comfort from love, since there is participation in the spirit, since there is affection and sympathy, complete my joy by doing this. See, humility comes when we, recognize it, when we recognize that we don't have within us the resources we need to be unified together as the people of God. And when I don't have the resources, that makes me dependent on someone else who has the resources. Therefore, I get humble. Humility is a byproduct of dependence. And so this is what Paul is saying. You don't have the resources you need, Mountain Fellowship, to live in unity. But Jesus does. And he has supplied them. Since there is encouragement in Christ, encouragement, that that word is exhortation. it, It means that in Christ, you have his exhortation, his words of strength that he gives you to encourage you and empower you. The word literally means to come alongside someone. In Christ, you have someone, the Son of God, who comes alongside you because he lives inside you and you are in him, comes alongside you and empowers you, strengthens you to go in the way that he wants you to go. We need that. Aren't we all just all the time looking for somebody to tell us where I'm supposed to go, what I'm supposed to do? So we latch on to these different groups out there. Oh, this group will tell me who I am, where I'm supposed to go, what I need to do. No, Paul says that encouragement you need is in Christ. You have it. He says you also have comfort from love. It's a comfort from knowing As Paul said, the son of God who loves you and gave himself for you. That's Galatians 2.20. This is how Paul lived. He said, the life I now live in this body, I live by faith, trusting, relying upon the son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. 
See, what happens when people in churches have conflict is that we're trying to get that love from each other. And if you don't give me the comfort of your love, you're gonna pay. And if I don't give you the comfort of love you're looking for from me, I'm gonna pay. But Paul says that it's in Christ that we have the comfort of love because he's the one. I didn't die for you and give my life for you. You didn't do that for me. If I have the comfort of Jesus' love, then I don't have to extract it from you. And therefore, we can live. We're both getting our comfort of love from Jesus, and therefore, we don't have to get it from each other. Now, he gives it to us through each other, but he's the source. What else do we have? We have participation in the spirit. That word is fellowship in the spirit, participation in the in the spirit. We have a power that comes from having the spirit of Jesus who raised him from the dead in us. We are in partnership with the spirit of Christ who lives in us, the spirit who raised Jesus from the dead. If you don't have the power to love someone else in this congregation, you have the participation in the spirit. You then, Jesus loves them, join him in his love for them which requires you to depend on him, which requires you to actually talk to him about your need for his power to love that person. The clearest sign that I am not participating and enjoying the fellowship of the spirit of Jesus in me is when I don't talk to him. I don't pray. I don't ask for help, like Paul said in chapter one, for the help of the spirit to love the person in my church who's difficult. And then he says, we have in Jesus the resource of affection and sympathy. That, that means tender mercy. And tender mercy means that I have sin that needs to be forgiven, that I have shame that needs to be covered. I can't look to myself or my own goodness or my own record to know that I'm clean, to know that I'm forgiven, to know that I'm right. I need the affection and sympathy of Jesus. I need his mercy. I need moment by moment forgiveness. And in Jesus, I have it. So look, here's what I think Paul is trying to say. We're needy. <laughs> We're needy people. And needy people who know they're needy tend to be more humble, particularly when they take their needs to Jesus. I need his encouragement. I need the comfort from his love. I need the power and participation of his spirit. I need his affection and mercy. I need that. And the more that I'm actively depending on those things in Christ, the humbler I'll be. To see humility as a byproduct of dependence on Jesus. And then look at, watch how these resources enable us to have 
unity. He goes on, complete my joy by being of the same mind. We can be of the same mind because we, we share encouragement in Christ that we all need. We share in the same mindset that we need encouragement from Christ, and we have it in him. He becomes what is unifying for us. He says, have the same love. Well, we can have the same love. We can share in love because we share in the comfort from the love of Jesus that we all need. So we're all needy people who need love. We all get it from him. So we can share in love. We can have the same love. We can be in full accord, he says. To be in full accord means to be in tune with one another. We had 100 pianos in here. It would not work to tune them to each other. You get one tuning fork, and they're all tuned to the one fork. They're all tuned to each other. That's what it means to be in one accord. And we get that when we, because we share, we participate in the same spirit. The spirit of Jesus lives in me. He lives in the Kesslers. He lives in the Mortons. He lives in the Hallsbrooks. He lives in us. So we share in him. We're all tuned to the same spirit. We're all in full, full accord. And then he comes back again and of one mind. We all share in the, the tender mercy of Jesus because we all have in our minds that we are sinners in need of a savior. And we've got him. So when Jesus becomes the one who is at the center of our lives and all of us have him there, we are all drawn together around him and in him. You know, the old, when I was a youth pastor, I used to tell couples who were, who were dating and say, look, if each of you will focus, so here you are and here's Jesus, if each of you will look to Jesus and focus on getting closer to him and, and knowing him as you move toward him, oh, look what happens. You get closer to each other. I know it's the old cheesy youth pastor trick, but it's true. It's true, isn't it? If all of us quit worrying about what you're not giving me and you're not giving me and you're not giving me, and we look to Jesus and what he has given all of us, draw us all together. So Paul's saying one key to our unity is for each of us to humbly depend on Jesus for the resources that we need to together live as a colony of heaven on Signal Mountain. But then he goes on. He said, he says the other key to our unity is for each of us to humbly depend on Jesus as the reality in which we all live together. He's not only the resource we all need, he's the reality in which we all live. Let me, let me try to explain that. He says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Have this mindset, this way of thinking among yourselves in your community, Mountain Fellowship which is yours in Christ Jesus. And then he explains what that means as he goes on. But, but listen, he says, you will have this humble mindset of unity with each other when you remember that you live in Christ together. 
when your mind is set on and shaped by the story of the one who emptied himself in love and was exalted as Lord, when your mind is set on and shaped by that story, when all of your little stories are swept up and caught up into that one, you'll be unified. We'll live in humble unity when we all live as if the story of the crucified and exalted Christ is the story within which all of our stories and the story of Mountain Fellowship takes place. The realm, this is what I mean by um, when we live in humble dependence on Jesus as the reality in which we all live together as a church. He is our resource, but he's reality. And so Paul goes on to describe this story. Jesus, though he was in the form of God, we don't need to debate what that means. It means he's God. Though he is in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. This doesn't mean he was going to let go of equality with God. It means that His glory was not a possession to be grasped, but a platform for giving. His his glory was not, his equality to God was not a possession to be grabbed, but it was a platform for giving. He was full so he could give out of the overflow of who he was. So he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. All kinds of debate on what emptied himself means. Let me just tell you, it doesn't mean he emptied himself of divinity. Paul said he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. He he didn't empty himself of divinity. He added to himself humanity. So it might look like this. So Mark Anns, if you know him, hope you're watching Mark, Dr. Anns did a crazy thing last weekend. Uh, He ran in, what is it called, the stump jump? He ran 31 miles in trails on this mountain in under seven hours. He ran that. Let me say that again. He ran 31 miles. That's a marathon plus five miles. A marathon plus a more than a 5K. That's crazy. And he did it on trails on the mountain. And he said it was wet. And he said he swore he'd never do it again. But he's going to do it again. So take Mark Ann's, okay? And, uh, and me. And together, we are going to enter a three-legged race. Okay? You know how you do that. Three-legged race, remember the good old days, uh, where two people, you tie their legs, their right legs, to, right and left leg together, and then they'd have to race that way with their three legs, two people, three legs, racing. Now, Mark Ann's, in that scenario, is no less an amazing runner. 
He's no less powerful. He's no less fast. He's no less in shape. But what he's done is he's added to himself this. <laughs> this lump of flesh, okay? Yeah, that's sort of what we're getting at here. Um, and in case you're wondering, I mean, that was an R.C. Sproul illustration. So it's, it's not that he emptied himself of divinity, that he didn't give up any of his divinity. He added him to himself humanity out of love to serve us. He took on the form of a servant to serve us because he loves us. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself. There it is. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. He died for my pride. He humbled himself to pay for and to cure my lack of humility. That's the story we live in. Our God is a God who did that for us. But that's not the end of his story. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Notice it doesn't say so that at the name of Jimmy or a pastor or a church member or every niche. But isn't, isn't that ultimately how we live when we get into conflict with one another? When we, when we count ourselves as more significant to the, than the other, we're asking them to bow their knee to our name? See, we all have one Lord who emptied himself in love and was exalted as Lord. There's only one person who deserves the knee bowed and the tongue confessed that he is Lord. And he belongs to all of us. And we all belong to him. And so again, just as we all together are depending on him to be the resource we need to live the life he's called us to live as a colony of heaven. We're all drawn together when we do that. But when we all bow our knee to him, when we all say, eh, not my crown, but yours here, when we all get off the throne of ourselves um, and we all bow to him and say, no, Jesus, I'm not Lord of your church, you are. I'm not Lord of my story, you are. When we all do that, it draws us together. Here's a beautiful thing. Remember I told you that the word conceit means empty glory? And that's what we all, by default, seek 
empty glory. Jesus had all the glory. And yet he emptied himself out of love for glory seekers like you and me. And now he is exalted in glory as Lord over us and in us and for us and through us. No wonder it's called empty glory. What a sham. What a sham to live for my own glory. What a sham to live so that people will bow at my name. What a sham when I've been invited to know and to love and to serve and to be with and to be filled with the Lord who emptied himself and is now glory. What Paul is saying is we all share in this story about Jesus and he's the hero, not us. So that when we, li- when we live as if his story is bigger than ours and more central than ours, when that story is our reality, it will humble us and unify us as a colony of Jesus the King in Sigma Mountain. Here's how I was convicted this week. When I get into relational trouble with you, with other Christians, just that conflict should serve as a light on the dashboard of my heart that tells me something is wrong under the hood. And what's wrong under the hood is humility is missing. And what's wrong under that is that I'm not believing the gospel. I'm not living in the reality of the story of what Jesus has done for me, and therefore, I'm not living on all the resources he's given me in himself. Let me say that again. You will know that there's a gospel malfunction in your heart when you see a love malfunction in your relationship. So friends, from here on out, whenever there's some sort of conflict between us, and there will be, we're sinners, right? Paul knew this. Whenever there's conflict between any of us, between any of you, let that be a light on the dashboard that says, hey, 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 what am I not believing about Jesus here? That's keeping me from being in unity with my brother and sister with that family in the church, with that pastor. I'll give you plenty of opportunities for this myself. (laughs) Um, If there's a love malfunction in my relationships, it means there's a gospel malfunction in my heart. So what do we do with all this? Repent, believe the good news, and follow Jesus. Repent. I'm going to ask you, do you need to repent of selfish ambition in any relationship with someone else in this church? 
do you need to turn away from seeking empty glory in this church? I ask myself that too. Am I seeking glory somehow? And you'll, you'll know that you're seeking glory when you're mad that you didn't get any. Just, I know that from experience. Who do you struggle to consider more significant than yourself in our congregation? Whose interests are you reluctant to look out for? And then dig a little deeper. So what's behind those relational sins? What's underneath that self-seeking attitude? Paul says, I might be looking for encouragement from someone else that only really comes from Christ. I might be looking for something horizontally that only comes vertically. Paul says, it might be that I'm demanding um, to, to get comfort of knowing that I'm loved from someone horizontally when ultimately it comes vertically. And so I should confess my lack of trust in Jesus for that. Rather than praying and seeking for power to live my life from participation in the spirit, I'm seeking power from something else, from my wealth, from my correct opinions about the latest issue from my connections with the right people. I'm seeking power from uh, the tribe that I belong to that is better than the one that you belong to. Uh, Sometimes anger feels good because it feels like temporary power. So I need to confess to Jesus my prayerlessness that I'm seeking power everywhere except in his spirit. Where am I going for affection and sympathy? In other words, whose heart has my heart? And then whose story am I living in? If I'm the hero of my story and you're the hero of your story, what's going to happen when our stories come together in this church? If every one of you is the hero of every one of your stories and then God calls you into this body to be one story called Mountain Fellowship together, that's a whole lot of heroes. We're not the Avengers here, folks. (laughs) And we're not a pantheon of Roman or Greek gods. There's only one hero to our story. If we all live in the story of Jesus and we all look to him as the hero all of our stories and the story of Mountain Fellowship together, then we will have the same mind and the same love and live in one accord. So let's, where do we need to repent, Mountain Fellowship? And then where do we need to believe the gospel again? Where do we need to trust again that Jesus emptied himself as a servant to rescue us from our self-service? That Jesus conquered our sin and Satan and the grave and now he reigns exalted over everyone and everything. Every power in heaven and on earth and under the earth will bow 
is bowing to Jesus, confessing that he is Lord to the glory of of the Father. That's the story we live in. How dare I try to seek your need to bow to my name? when that's the story I live in. So we repent, we believe the good news of the story of Jesus, and we follow him in it. Depending on him as our only resource, living in him as our only reality. Father, would you do that in us as a people? Because imagine how different that would look in this cultural moment (laughs) for a group of people who come from all kinds of different opinions and walks of life and all sorts of other different tribes. What if we were to live as one tribe in Jesus? What if we were to live as a colony of heaven on Signal Mountain? We can't do it, Lord Jesus, unless you do it in us. So we ask that even as we come to your table, you would help us to depend on you as our resource and to depend again on you as the reality of the one who was broken and poured out for us, but who lives exalted as the living Lord. We ask you to do this in us in Christ's name. Amen.